what you are basic. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence itself. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike Podcast, episode number 41. I hope you all had a fantastic Christmas, but we are now looking forward to 2024. And I think we've got a tough year ahead of us. I'm not going to lie, there's going to be a lot of challenges. And whilst I wouldn't wish any of the hardships we're facing upon us, what I do think is that by taking on those challenges head on, we can actually improve ourselves. We can use them as the springboard to self-actualization, which is the process of becoming the best version of ourselves possible. Now, of course, for many of us, it requires us to actually become more enduring before the hardships arrive. We can only overcome the hardships if we are ready to overcome them, if we've already got a base level of stamina and endurance. And that's why I wanted to get somebody on the show tonight to talk about building character through voluntary hardships. So we're talking about things like physical exercise, cold water submersion, trail running, all of the things that I'm all about, I'm an advocate for each one of these because I think by building these things into our lives now, then when life throws out as a curveball, when something comes out of the blue, when the world turns into a great totalitarian tyranny, we'll have the capacity and skills to actually do something about it, to take action in our own lives, to not just sit there in fear and fright, which is what many people are still doing today. And that will be because we have already done some of that self-work. We've already gotten used to being outside of our comfort zone, putting ourselves in situations where we're forced to endure, we're forced to adapt, we're forced to come up with creative solutions. All of the same skills that we're going to need to make it through the next few decades. Similarly, when we pair some of these activities with actual nature by going out into the mountains, by going on trail runs in forests, by doing cold water submersion out in nature we can actually also move closer to the creator too. So we're not only developing our bodies and mind, we're also progressing on our spiritual path as well. So that's why I wanted to get Jordan B. Goldstein on the show tonight. Jordan is somebody who helps people as a coach to do the self-transformation and develop that philosophy on life. It's a topic that's very close to my heart. Some of you will know. For a long time, I was pursuing my own passion of running ultramarathons in nature, on trails and in mountains. I did that for a number of years. I thought I'd be a professional at that, but I got injured and my life was destined to take another path. However, the successes that I would go on to have in other areas such as investing and in my personal life, in my relationships, all of that was actually based on the foundations of the things I learned through being out in nature, doing physical activity and from endurance. So it's very close to my heart, this topic, and I think there's a lot here for everyone. I wanted to have a discussion with somebody who might inspire listeners going into the new year 
So in part one, we discuss Jordan's own journey from professor to coach. We talk about how his outspoken stance during COVID got him kicked out of the university. He became an entrepreneur and went on to start coaching other people, using some of that endurance that he had to show in his own life to actually help others to learn how to do the same. Then in part two, we go much deeper into the philosophy of trail running, self-improvement through natural movement. So if you're thinking of making New Year's resolutions, this is the episode to listen to. It's really going to help you put things into perspective. And I just think there's some really nice conversations as me and Jordan have both taken a similar path in life. So I share some personal stories, as does Jordan. So with that being said, members, please head over to parallelmike.com to sign in for the full episode. If you are not a member yet and would like to support my content going into 2024, I would really appreciate it. It really helps me to have support. I put an awful lot of time into these episodes and I've got a fantastic set of episodes coming up with some huge pieces of research that I've done. So it's a great time to jump on board. We've got a lot of episodes over there, so please consider becoming a member. In closing, I wish you all fantastic health and happiness and prosperity going into 2024 and this one's going to help you achieve that. Thank you so much for listening and like always, I'll see each and every one of you in the next one. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast. We are honored today to be speaking with Professor Jordan B. Goldstein. Jordan, we met through a mutual friend in Johnny Hoddle. You was on his show a long time back and I don't know how or when I added you, but at some point I did. I think it was because Johnny liked something of yours to do with running. And as an ex-endurance athlete, I was like, oh, I'll add that guy and see kind of what he's up to. And all this time later, here we are talking and I wanted to get you on to talk about your life because I've seen that you do some coaching, that you've been helping guys re-engage with masculinity and get themselves out of this unhealthy and demoralizing world for men, which is kind of like epidemic now for men. So I wanted to find out more about you, your past and what led you to where you are today. And I thought we'd have an awesome conversation about mindset and psychology and just life in general. So welcome to the show, Jordan. How's it going, buddy? It's going well. Thank you so much. And shout out to Johnny there. That was one of my favorite podcast appearances on his Staying Free podcast. Um, and if you go and you listen to that, you're going to hear a lot of my experiences in Canada during the pandemic as a thought criminal, I guess would be maybe the best way you could put it. Um, but certainly you'll get a lot of in-depth understanding into my philosophy, particularly uh, the place of athletics in freedom, flourishing, and individual self-actualization. Um, so just a little bit about me and who I am. I am 37 years old. I live up in Canada. I live in rural Ontario, small little village uh, that's about 70 miles northwest of the big bad city of Toronto. Um, I am a former professor. I used to teach at a university. Um, I got my PhD in 2016 in kinesiology, which is a fancy word um, that has nothing to do with what I actually studied. I am a humble historian, and uh, what I studied was sports, and in particular, the conflation of national identity with particular sports and what that process looked like and how meaningful symbols can be sporting symbols can be in actually perpetuating and creating national identity um you, you know that i'm canadian so i actually wrote this about the stanley cup ice hockey and canadian national identity and i situated that in the larger intellectual movements 
um, of the last half of the 19th century, in particular, the rise of progressivism, new liberalism or collective liberalism, and the demise and death of classical liberalism or you know, what we might just call freedom. <laughs> People who like freedom and want to see freedom flourish. Um, so that's a little bit about my background. I taught um, as a professor for seven years. Um, I had a pretty interesting academic career. Um, if there are people out there who were involved in the campus free speech battles in North America and in Great Britain, uh, you know, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, they may recognize the name Lindsay Shepard and the university Wilfrid Laurier University. That was my university. We were the center of a massive international free speech scandal uh, involving a, another Dr. Jordan from Canada, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. This was the, um, it was an episode where a grad student played a clip of Dr. Peterson on public access television for which she was, uh, and then she told the students to watch and make up their own minds, or I know, or um, she was then brought into a Maoist struggle session with the professor, her supervisor, and some apparatchnik from the DEI office, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion office. Um, God bless Lindsay. She secretly recorded it, leaked it to the media, and it, our, our university was plunged into an international free speech scandal for the last half of 2017 and coming into 2018. Uh, I was a young prof. I'd only been working as a prof for a year. I don't. I didn't have tenure, I had no protection, but I knew that this was so wrong. Uh, and I'm a big freedom guy and I love free speech. And if you can't uh, debate ideas on a university campus, which is something I thought it was a cute little thought back then um, that that was the place where you should be doing that. I don't have that thought anymore. Um, uh, you know, I, it was obvious to me what I should do. I should support the student. So it was me and at first four other professors out of 600 and no, 560 of us who supported the student. Only two other profs and myself joined with Lindsay Shepard to create her free speech club. The other two profs had tenure, which meant they couldn't be fired. I don't have tenure, so I don't have any protection. This likely ended my my academic career um, right then and there. I have no proof, but it's likely that I got put on some sort of a list uh, or I got blackballed or whatever. I think it's um, fair to say so you got put on a list. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that's what happens. Uh, I don't have any evidence. And that's one of the creepy things about stuff like this is like, you just don't know. So I, I can't say for sure. This is the reason why I never, one of the reasons why I never got extended. But I don't know. And it could easily be because I was out there and I wrote lots of angry letters and was on social media and openly part of the club and going after the admin and going after the union and all the all the stuff. Um, so, yeah, um, that was 2018. Um, but one cool thing about this um, episode was I was really inspired by Dr. Peterson. Um, and in, in different kinds of ways, like I was a prof, a young guy, and I was just starting to scratch the surface into what I was realizing was a really deep understanding of sport and its role in promoting freedom and individual self-actualization. And Dr. Peterson, this was the time when he was just starting his biblical lecture series um, if people remember that. And I live close enough to Toronto. I actually went and attended them all and beautiful. I got the university to pay for them. That was a nice little expense. 
uh, that I got to write, which I'm sure they didn't want to approve, but all good either way. Um, and he just convinced me, you know, I think it was in the second or the third one. He's like, listen, I put, I, I lectured in my psychology class, right? And it's maybe a hundred people. And I put that lecture on YouTube and 200,000 people watch it. And it's like, yep, he's right. Like, he's right. If you feel like you have something to share and you have a powerful idea, you have a responsibility to go out there and start spreading it. So at the same time, I was starting to speak out, you know, for free speech. I was starting to become a little bit more public in talking about what I was teaching in my classes, in particular, my sport philosophy classes about the moral value of sport and its powerful role in, in tilting us towards like the best versions of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I remember it March for March 14th and it's like, I get told that I don't have a tenure job, but I can come back and work as a contractor, which means do the exact same work, receive 40% of the pay and receive no benefits. So it's oh, like, wow. That's fun, right? And then I'm piece to piece, like like class to class, essentially, right? They hire me to teach a class. Um, so what did you do? What was what was your response? Uh, well, I was just like, I had to go teach a class in ten minutes, so I walked out of there and just gathered myself and taught the damn class that I was supposed to teach, which is a Canadian sport history class. Um, and then two days later, they shut the university down for over two and a half years. <laughs> So I accepted the contracts because they were digital and because I wouldn't be commuting and I'd already taught all those classes. So it was like very little work you could say for me. So I didn't feel like I was being too badly taken advantage of, but I knew right then and there, like I was never coming back. I was, my career in the university was over and I had to figure out something else to do very quick, which led me into the world of online entrepreneurship. Um, because I'm somebody who appreciates a flexible work schedule uh, and somebody who doesn't want to just throw away what I had worked so hard to achieve. You know, when you're a PhD and you try to become a professor, you apprentice, right? I apprenticed for my entire 20s, researching, reading, writing, making no money with the hopes that I would secure this, this job or this career. And when that doesn't happen, I'm not interested in throwing away all my skills and the things that I think I'm uniquely talented at. Um, did anyone ever say so to I you, wanted Jordan, to be... that you oh, need to, sorry, buddy, did anyone ever say to you that, you know, maybe you should keep your mouth quiet or did anyone kind of nudge you at any point and say, probably not a good idea to continue speaking about those things? Yes, all the time. Um, in fact, the people that I was with, the professors, they would not allow me to do media interviews, even though I really wanted to. <laughs> they said, we're going to keep you as private as possible. We're going to shield you. So my two professor friends, they shielded me. They were, they were two of my angels, um, but they wouldn't let me do media. They wouldn't let me, um, they wouldn't let me be public. So even within like the people who we were with, they understood the immense risk that I was taking. And they told me to, to maybe not do it. Um, and I even conversed with Dr. Peterson over email a few times, um, advice on stuff like that how to deal with these things um there was a network of us a, a lot of canadian academics at this time that tried to band together and it fizzled out um as sort of all these intellectual efforts did at that at, at that at that time but yeah it was obvious to me at the time i was taking a massive risk but it's one of those things where 
you have to weigh the present sacrifice with the future trade-off. And it's like, so if I keep my mouth quiet, if I keep quiet and I never say a thing and I don't act on what I believe is right, what am I going to be, what's the trade-off? So I secure a career that pays me money and is good. But every time I go to that building and every time I look at myself in the mirror, like I hate the person that I became in order to get that because I sold myself out. I sold out what I believed in and I had a chance to prove I had an opportunity to prove what I what I believe. That's the other part of it. You know, for a lot of academics who say they're not on the woke agenda or whatever they're not in favor of the diversity equity and inclusion ideology that has just overrun our institutions they may want to speak up but they don't feel as if they ever get an opportunity where it's like hey if i just speak up in my department meeting no one's going to know that i spoke up and i'm just going to become a pariah so i i understand that but it's like my school was the center of an international free speech scandal it's not something you could just ignore where it's like i did you know i i had the chance to stand up when it mattered the most and i decided that you know i was too weak or i was too cowardly to do it in the moment you know i already knew i already knew that trade-off wasn't worth it not even close to worth it um so i was more than willing to sacrifice things that people think are important like their job <laughs> and their career uh, and sort of like their life's aspiration, but it's like the trade is your soul, like like in your principles and what you believe. This is not a trade any of us should ever make, realistically. Uh, so yeah, people warned me, and I told them thank you. But like I was prepared for I was prepared for this moment for a long time, and I'm not going to let it pass without me acting in accordance with my conscience and what I believe is right and true. You know, going into that time period there was a lot of strange things happening and that censorship hammer was starting to come down more and more over the past decade, building up to let's say 2020. So we all was kind of in that. I mean, I saw it coming in my career too. I said to my wife, I said, probably circa 2016. I said, I, I think I've got about three years left at max, maybe three or four, because I was in a very woke career too. It was um, working in the therapy profession. So I was working as a social worker and counselor. So it was far left. And I saw all of the flags coming in. We got all the training, the regular uh, struggle sessions where we'd sit and learn about genders and all, all the other stuff. And we'd all come out of it and laugh our asses up and say, what is going on? Like, where is this going? So I saw it coming too. And I was like, yeah, I've got about three or four years left. So I need to start angling out of this and starting to think about my future. I'm going to provide for my family. What about you, Jordan? Did you think that you was going to be able to ride through it? It sounds like it kind of came on pretty strong in 2018. But what did you think before that? Did you start to notice the world was changing? And did you have any views on that? Or was this all new to you when it happened at your university? No, I was very, I wasn't one of those professors or intellectuals who were like, where did this come from? I had gone through my own intellectual, philosophical, political transformation basically in between like getting my master's and entering into my PhD, um, you know, in my master's and undergrad, I was garden variety progressive. Just that's it. Like not, not special. This was actually a moderated position for me because I entered university as a full fledged communist. So yeah, I had mellowed quite a bit. Uh, wow, into you becoming just a regular, <laughs> yeah. into becoming you, just you, a regular progressive. Sides. 
it's one of those things where you actually didn't switch sides. You're just confused when you're young, right? And for me, it's like there was a horrifying injustice. And I came of age during 9-11 and the lead up to the Iraq war. So my initial politics is just anti-war. And if you're anti-war in 2002, that means you hate the right, which means you gravitate towards the left. And I'm just a radical person. So I went to the far edge of the spectrum. But I learned my, like my undergrad is in history and that disabuses you of being a communist real fast. So that's that's fine. So I just became a progressive. But I just started to notice this overarching victim narrative seeping into my behaviors and my attitudes. And it started to create dissonance within me based on my own family history and where I come from. So I come from a family of Holocaust survivors. Uh, my grandfather in particular is a, is a person who looms large uh, and influences me in a lot of decisions that I make. He um, was sent out of Germany uh, when he was 17. He was part of the um, Kinder Transport, which was the last ditch effort um, to get Jewish kids out of Germany right after Kristallnacht. So his, you know, my my great grandparents were rounded up and sent to a concentration camp, uh, and you know their houses and stuff was were smashed up during Kristallnacht. And then my grandfather was sent uh, by himself uh, to a refugee camp in England. And then tens of thousands of Jewish kids were put on these boats and sent to the United States, Canada, uh, Australia. Uh, most of them weren't allowed to disembark. So the kids were sent back. And most of those kids ended up dying in the Holocaust. My grandfather was one of the lucky ones. He got onto one of the boats that wasn't turned away, settled in Canada, didn't know English, has no family anywhere close to him. He's got two sisters who were already sent to the United States a couple of years before. But his parents never sees them again, never sees anybody like this family. He's uh, trained as a butcher, so they send him to a farm. The The people who he gets uh, sent with, horribly anti-Semitic, physically abuse him, beat him up all the time. Okay. Now that's some real, that's real adversity. Like, I think we can all agree that's, that's a pretty rough hand to get dealt in life. And then you're starting as an 18-year-old in a foreign country where they hate you and you don't speak the language, right? And what did he do with his life? Did he complain about it? Was he like a victim? No, he operated and owned his own business for over 50 years. He met a beautiful woman, married her, created two beautiful children, financed their university, master's degrees, like two daughters, you know, lived the dream. Um, and this idea of like principle overall is something that is so powerful in his example. So my great grandfather fought for the German army in World War One. So he was actually receiving a pension from the German government before they, you know, tossed him in a concentration camp and, and murdered him. Um, but after the war, my grandfather was offered the pension. He was offered my great grandfather's World War One pension. And his response to the German government was, shove it. I don't need your blood money. And he actually, he consciously unlearned the German language as a further spite to his homeland, to what they did to him and his family. So then I'm here, I'm this like master's student. I'm living, I live an incredibly privileged life. And it's like, everybody is telling me victim, 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 like feel bad about your circumstances. You're not able to overcome what you were born into. And all I do is like, look back at my grandfather's story and be like, yo, this is wrong. Like, this is wrong. 
they're wrong about this. You can overcome. And actually, that's the story of humanity is overcoming. So that just planted the seeds of doubt in my mind. And I started to, I was also at that time really um, interested in, I've always been interested in people who don't fit into their political parties, like like the um, like the black sheep, I guess you could say. And this was right at the time of the Ron Paul revolution. Like, so it's like, I started to learn about economics and learn that it wasn't just people on the left wing that cared about freedom as we often so hear in our modern discords, like the left wing loves freedom and the right wing just wants to ruin everything that's good in the world. <laughs> um, so I started to read people I'd never read before. I started to be convinced and it was more of a proper clarification of what I'd always probably believed on the inside, as opposed to me really changing what I believed. It was more like, oh, I think I actually have always believed this, but I've just been confused. And, you know, you're a young person. Of course, you're confused, right? Um, there's all these ideas. There's all these conflicting things that and messages um, and signals that are being sent in society. Um, so as I came into my PhD program, you know, the, the most influential book that I read was uh, Intellectuals in Society by Thomas Sowell, which everybody should read. And it's basically a book that exposes the fraud of academia over the past 150 years, that the people who we assume are experts actually don't know anything and they're always wrong, basically. And the worst part is when they're wrong, they have no feedback mechanism to correct their false assumptions and they just become more prestigious and they just become like elevated and they never get called on how wrong their ideas were and these are people who who deal in the world of ideas specifically so you know when i'm coming into my phd program in 2012 i'm basically like oh shoot this the whole thing is a shell game uh, and most people in here are frauds and uh i'm gonna really stick out and i might have made a bad choice about where i should be where i should be pursuing so i was well aware of all that stuff hyper aware of it and when the free speech stuff started in 2015 with some of like the riots at Berkeley or whatever, like with Milo or Ben Shapiro, to me, it was like, good. This stuff has been rotting out the institutions already for the past 35 years and is great. Like, let's get the magnifying glass on it. Let's burn it out. But, you know, we all know what happened. <laughs> we all know what happened. Uh, the, free the freedom people did not win that battle. We got crushed. We got crushed bad. Yeah. And I can't but think, you know, all of that was that lead up to that huge event that was coming down the pipeline, which, of course, those at the highest echelons knew exactly what was coming. And we saw all of these kind of mini attacks and assaults in the build up to it. And now when you look back from this perspective, you know, hashtag me too, all of these little attacks that divided people, uh, the racial tensions were getting much higher going into it. Donald Trump getting elected as president and kind of splitting America, all of that stuff then catalyzed in this huge event in 2020 and people were ready to accept mm. that because we'd been so divided in that time. One thing that I just wanted to pick up on on what you just said, but I think maybe we'll talk a lot about this in part two is that inspiration from, from your granddad. I, I think that's so critical to have that male role model, even if you don't have a direct one, because growing up, I didn't have a direct one as such, but my grand grandfather and my great grandfather, just the same as you, uh, my great grandfather was in World War One, World War Two, voluntarily both times. He was too young the first time, and he was retired the second time. So he chose to go both times, and he had to get out. He didn't have to go either. And uh, when COVID came around, it was exactly the same. I was like, "Look at my life. Look how lucky I am. I'm privileged. I am to be 
able to speak out against this stuff. I'm not being sent to war. You know, I'm not, I'm not psyoped into believing I should be in a war. And I was like, if I don't do something now, even if it means sacrificing everything, my life even, it's like, if I don't do something mm-hmm. now, then I've just disgraced that memory and, and the legacy that, you know, he's left me and my family. So I totally get what you're saying, but but so few people have been able to do that, Jordan. And so few people mm-hmm. have the concept of legacy these days. So what do you think it was for you that separated you from the others? Because so many people probably felt what you was feeling, thinking, damn, I need to speak out. I really want to. But then they just turned around. Do you think it's just economic or do you think there's something deeper going on there? I mean, like, it's hard for me to know what's in the heart and in the mind of other people. So I don't want to project out what motivates other people individually, right? Because I just don't know. And I wouldn't want somebody to do that to me either. Collectively, generally, we can make uh, some assumptions. Um, economics, for sure, is a gigantic factor in in this. Self-preservation is a gigantic motivating factor for all of us, okay? And it comes to the effective secularization, I think, of our society, where the material is seen as the most real, right? And this is a, this is a downstream effect of sort of the ascent of science or the ascent of objectivity as the root of epistemological uh truth like so how we know things like how do we know things are true we can touch them we can taste them we can smell them we can measure them we can record them we can predict based on prior knowledge what's going to happen in future events right this idea that science is the ultimate determinant of truth leads us into overestimating the importance of the material i would suggest so when it's like what's the most important thing it's safety security and material comfort right because the material is what's real and that extends out to mortality. So it's like, well, when I'm not here, I won't know. Right. So I better do my best to ensure when I'm here, I have comfortability. I have material, I have material security because we don't know what's beyond. I can't touch it. I can't taste it. I can't feel it. I can't predict it. I can't measure it. I can't observe it. Therefore it's not real. And what's real is what's right in front of me right now. I think it's a very powerful downstream effect of that, where people are willingly making the trade of legacy or principle for expediency, because we live in the material now. But if you don't conceive of yourself as limited by the material, so this idea maybe of a life that extends beyond, well, then what goes on here has really big importance for what might be coming next. So it's kind of like a Pascal's wager sort of an element, right? And if people are not familiar with Pascal's wager, it's like the, it's it's a basically a rational argument as to why people should believe in God. That's what Pascal's wager is. It's like if there I have four assumptions I can make, right? God exists and God doesn't exist. So that's two. And then there's two conditions for that. If God exists and I believe, or if I don't believe, and if God doesn't exist and I believe, and if I don't believe, right? If God doesn't exist and I don't believe, nothing happens. If God doesn't exist, then I do believe nothing happens. If God exists and I do believe, well, that's good. If God exists and I don't believe, that's bad 
there's only one situation that's bad in that equation and it's related to non-belief so even if i can't rationally prove that god exists logically i should believe because it's the ultimate hedge because if there is the chance that that there is the existence man i've covered all my bases but if the reality is that god doesn't exist well it didn't matter if i did or if i didn't anyways right so it's that idea it's like if i'm trying to play in the biggest arena which is the existential arena the life and death arena the everlasting soul arena well the, the material is not something that i should aim myself at when i'm determining what is the right course of action or the wrong course of action does it make my life difficult yes <laughs> is it sacrificing something that's hard in the now for something that I can't prove will be coming in the future? Yeah, that's fine. But I operate on faith and I operate on belief and I'm secure playing those games. Whereas other people are terrified. And so they don't play those games. 2020, 21, 22, all that garbage, that was spiritual warfare, right? That was spiritual warfare. What are you willing to put up with until you're no longer able to do it? When is enough enough? When do you say no? And a lot of people failed that spiritual test because they're not anchoring their day-to-day -day understanding of who they are in any larger perspective of what it means to live on this planet yeah and you hit on the right point there because that is what separated so many people for me personally i saw the people who had a really strong faith that was not necessarily bound to a religion it was a very personal faith that they believed in something outside of themselves those were the most courageous people fortunately i had a faith and it made it much easier but i think i'd have probably been the same no matter what uh, because I kind of had an understanding of who the people we're facing are and the darkness that we're facing. But I think once you explore the darkness so much, and you only want to explore it so much, Jordan, don't you? Because mm -hmm. it's too dark. But once you do that, the only answer then is light. It's like, well, if that exists, then there must be the binary of that. And that takes you down a spiritual path. And, you know, being in Poland as well, like where there is this history, I mean, this is where the Holocaust took place and there's so many different memorials and museums and places that I visited since I since I moved here and I remember I was walking down the street one day with my with my wife and everything everything was closed up and it was trying to make people mask outdoors it was awful and that was the first time I'd ever moved country I'd moved from the UK I'd never lived more than 50 60 miles from my home city and now I was in this place I couldn't speak the language everyone was masking I wasn't so I was getting nasty glares constantly and I remember I was walking down the street with my wife. We'd gone to the city to sort out a property that our parents was letting out and we was going to go and just help uh, paint it. And I was walking down the street and I just looked at her and I said, I said, I'm done. And she was like, what do you mean? And I said, well, I'm done. Like, I'm going to die to fight this. I'm not taking a thing. I'm never going to wear the mask. I'm not taking any test. I, that's it. That's my line in the sand. I was like, if I'm not here next year, it's because I'm fighting this to the bitter end. And she went, yeah, me too. And that was it. Like after that, it was like the, the weight of the world just gone because almost up until that point, although I intuitively knew that's what who I was, I had to verbalize it and say it. And 
once I did that, it was like so much easier. I felt so much stronger and it didn't really hurt quite so much to have all those people staring and glaring and kind of tutting at us for not following the rules. That's I I I I love that story. It's like the power of the truth when it's spoken is so real, right? That's what got me through my ordeal up here in Canada. So, you know, it's like we were talking about what happened with me at the university. It's like, well, we went digital and then all of a sudden, like things went nuts, especially in 2021 with the mandates on uh, particular products they want in your body. Uh, things went kooky real fast up here, like scary. Um, and, you know, I had to fight to not be fired from my job, even though I was digitally teaching and I was never in contact with anybody didn't make a difference still had a mandate put on me from the university mandates from government like where were the places we could list off the places i could go because it was like three places and every other place i wasn't allowed to go in <laughs> right like like it was that ridiculous it was that ridiculous my closest friends see you later family members we don't want to see you like it was it was heavy man so if you don't have that kind of faith anchored in something deep the social pressure here was, I'm just speaking in Canada and particularly where I live in Ontario, but like Canada was a, everybody knows it was a bit of a basket case. Um, it was, it was wild, man. And, and so many people failed and they felt that pressure and they couldn't combat it with anything strong enough because they thought it was like, they didn't think it was this spiritual game that they were playing. Right. So they, they, they under, they felt the force, but they didn't have anything strong enough backing them to push back. So they capitulated. And it's like so many people I talk to now, they realize that. And it's so strange, Mike, like those are the people who apologize to me. <laughs> the people who literally like talked me out of their lives the people who literally put the mandates on me, the people who like in my family who said, we're not willing to see you. I ain't got a word of acknowledgement about any of that stuff from them. And I don't think I ever will. But when I talk to people and they're like, I got pressured into taking the jab and I let you down. I'm like, number one, yes, you did. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for, for, for admitting that. Right. Um, but it's it's those people that I think really have a lot of soul searching to do. There are people who took the jab with the purest of heart and the purest of intention. They thought that was they were going to get sick and it was a health related. They, there are people and I think people on our side are too harsh sometimes uh, for people who got who did take the, the whatever. People have different motivations. If you're somebody who was. I made this as a health decision and I may, maybe it was wrong, but it's like who among us hasn't taken the wrong pill when we're just trying to, you know, either heal or prevent like an injury. So it's like, if you were motivated by health reasons to take this thing, I don't really view you as my enemy. I might've hoped you would have maybe had more critical thinking, but Hey, you know, whatever, like nobody's perfect. It's the people who didn't want to take it, but gave in for like, oh, I want to go on that trip or, oh, I really like to want to go see my sports team or I want to be able to go to a restaurant or a bar. It's like the people who they were abused by the lockdowns and they're just like, I just don't want to be abused anymore, but I don't want to take this thing, but I just don't want to be abused. 
those are the people who there's a little bit more soul searching, I believe on their part. And I've talked to a number of people in Canada and it's, it eats them up. It, it really does. They're like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I gave in when I shouldn't have. And that's the feeling I never wanted to feel ever in my life. I never wanted to feel this shoot. I had a moment to prove myself and I absolutely failed. I failed to recognize it. I failed to show up. I failed to act in accordance with my deepest beliefs and principles. That is a fate, you know, this other thing, like talking about the material world, it's like there are people out there where they cannot imagine a fate worse than death, right? And for me, it's like, no, I absolutely can imagine a fate worse than death. It's living for 50 years knowing I sold myself out. That's way worse than death to me. You know, I'm Jewish. I come from a line of people who consistently time and time again, have decided you are threatening me with violence. You're threatening me with death. You're threatening me with ruin. And the only thing I have to do to stop it is say, I'm not Jewish anymore. And you know what? Time and time again, you know what those people say? Screw it. Take my body. I'm Jewish. My soul will go on. And you're like, yes, I'm come from those people. I, they were able to recognize it. I want to be able to recognize it. Right? So that's the kind of thing. It's like, how was I able to identify it? I don't know, man. I think I've just always been preparing my entire life for it. I, 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 honestly, it's just heavily in my mind that the worst thing you can do is have a belief and a principle, have a chance to prove it, and then fail because you're a coward. No, man, not for me. No, me neither. And I think a lot of us who have made it this far and are still in the game I almost kind of sometimes say to people, it's like you're in a game and it's like a computer game and there's levels, there's level one, level two, and we don't know how high those levels go. <laughs> and we don't know when our level ends. At some point, maybe that's it for us, game over. But you've just got to get to the next round. You've just got to keep going to the next level. It's like, a, I, you know, I was a boxer before I was a runner and, you know, you've just got to, the bell rings, you have to stand up. That's it. Stand up, get up next round. Even if it's not looking so good for you, you've got to stand up for that bell and make the bell. And uh, and I think we did make the bell. We we, we got up, we made it to the next round. Uh, but every time you go through one of these battles in life, whether it's facing up to your university like you did, facing up to the mad crowds, facing up to your own damn family. I mean, geez, that's awful. Like to know your family are quite willing to say, right, that's it. I don't want you in my life anymore. Just because you've got independence and courage, that's it. You know, <laughs> like that's hard stuff, but you come out of it so thick skinned. Uh, and I think we're being built up by someone. I think it's God. I think God's building us all up because we're going to have a role in whatever happens next. That's my true belief. Like, and, all, and then I look back at my life and say, all of those hard times, Mike, they're building you up for wherever this goes. So how do you feel about that, Jordan? Do you feel like you are being guided spiritually or that there is this kind of destiny or path for you and this is just building you up for the challenges ahead? I, I would say yes, um, if only because I think that's the story that we all have um, individually, collectively, um, that without adversity, we can't realize what we're truly made of. Um, and so... Yeah, it's one of those things where you're not really happy about going through the trials when you are going through them. But if you can understand that on the other side is, this is the word that I use a lot in my personal coaching. And I probably said it about like a dozen times in the calls that I had before I jumped onto this 
podcast is transcendence, right? It's this, it's, it's not enough to say, to call this like a transformation or like an achievement. It's like you literally overcome the limitations that prevented you from doing something and you break through and you become a new on the other side. But there's this never ending progression because there's no end state. There's no perfection. Perfection is not of this world. It's not a human quality. <laughs> perfection is not a human is not is not a human quality. So anytime we find ourselves in a moment of struggle, we need to stop, pause, and appreciate that the struggle is being experienced so that we can break through and transcend to something greater, more monumental, and more appropriate with our true potential. So maybe this idea of destiny, I'm not sure it, it's a difficult, it's a difficult concept because then we're starting to get into like the, is there a free will type of an argument, which is not necessarily the argument I want to have. The argument I want to have is I don't care if we have free will or not. If I choose to accept free will, then my life becomes better. And if I choose to live in a fatalistic way, then I lose control over my life. So I don't really think we have a choice. We have to assume that we have free will. Otherwise, our option is nihilism and that nothing matters and that nothing means anything. And it goes back to that Pascal's wager thing. It's like, well, even if that's true, we're still here. We're still living this life. And I'd rather not live a life of mean, uh, like devoid of meaning and purpose and beauty and romance. And I can choose to aim and tilt my life towards those 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 elements i was laughing. dude <laughs> you know well i mean i i apologize man i apologize no, it's not your fault man it's the internet it's nothing you can do it's just the way it is blame the canadian government we only have two internet uh, service providers in the whole country and they're both gigantic monopoly that's crazy i mean you guys should have better internet than rural poland for sure i mean we've got like one tower that's like about five miles away that i'm pointing my route outside. i've got to put my route outside it's that shifty but if i put it outside it's fine but indoors no way okay man we're gonna try again uh we'll try and answer this question uh and hopefully let's uh i'm, I'm gonna pray that this one uh, picks up and we can uh figure it out because it's a great conversation uh but yeah. if not and if we Sorry have to like that. reschedule the second part that's fine we can always figure something out if we yeah yeah i appreciate i appreciate that and i'm just yeah apologize again no the, don't, don't can... apologize for something that's not your fault he's uh no, well, that's, that's what Canadians that do. That, that's that's, that's that literally the definition of, yours, of a Canadian. <laughs> that's the definition of a Canadian, someone who apologizes for something they're not responsible for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I always <laughs> used to say that to people uh, when I was like working uh, in counseling and coaching. I was like, don't apologize for something you haven't done. You don't have to apologize. <laughs> Bro, Canada, it's the place where two people will accidentally bump into each other. Neither of them are wrong and both will turn around and tell, say they're sorry to the other person. It's People ridiculous. say that about Canada. You know, I never realized it's, it was true. Dude, it's so, it's so, so true. I mean, I'm a Canadian historian who deals with Canadian national identity. So I actually, I, I understand this kind of stuff pretty good. You know, <laughs> it's well. really crazy that you're, you guys, you guys in Canada who like sports, like you're all obsessed with the Stanley Cup. And it's really crazy because I met a good friend called PJ who's been on my podcast a couple of times now from Canada. And his master's thesis was on, the Stanley Cup and symbolism in sports. <laughs> when you said earlier, was it really? Can yeah, you hook him up with me? Because literally, that's my dis dude. That's my dissertation. That's his dissertation my, too. And I turned my dissertation into this man. It's a book. 
Oh my! I got a book, dude. He he spoke about the Stanley Cup and the Holy Grail. That's crazy. Maybe he read this your is book. My book. He probably <laughs> did. This is my book, man. This is like me. This is University of Toronto Press, uh, the most prestigious academic press in Canada. Oh, nice. Well, you know, I'm actually that is a podcast PJ's been saying. I really want to do that podcast on my dissertation uh, to discuss it with me about the symbolism around the Stanley Cup and around sports in general. So I was like, yeah, man, let's do it. So that's really crazy that you've done the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's really interesting because like I'm the expert on it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'll ask him about it. I mean, PJ was an ex uh, ice hockey player and I think he he went, uh, he was early pro. He went started to go pro, but in the lesser league, now he's a coach up there in uh, the north. So yeah, he's a great guy. They're really nice guys. He's a... He's a can you hook me up with him? That's like, oh, it sounds sure. like we, yeah, have, yeah. we have to be hooked up together. That's In amazing. Fact, maybe that's a podcast. You, PJ, and uh, discussing the symbolism of the Stanley Cup. That'd be awesome. I was going to say, if you're going to have that podcast and you don't invite me, I'm going to be a little offended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's where I might have to go. I think I'm just going to leave this one running, but I'll just say to listeners, we've had a few internet issues. You know, Jordan lives out in the sticks. I live out in the sticks. So this is just normal. So we're just going to kind of roll with it, Jordan, and pick back up where we was. You discussed about how, you know, I think you answered that question on destiny on on in your opinion. Um, I mean, I'm the same in that I I think we've all got free will and I think we interplay with something. Like there's something, maybe we've got an ideal self and an ideal outcome, and it might not be a pretty outcome, but it's maybe the highest expression of ourselves that we can achieve. It might be a courageous act uh, that we end our life with. We don't know. So I don't think it's like ideal as in perfect utopian outcome but i think there's something that we're all capable of here whilst we're alive and it's probably the most beautiful expression of ourselves we could achieve uh, and we have to play with life we have to be a, a participant and when people talk about npcs uh that's the biggest tragedy for me and i i believe that everyone could be a playable character i don't think you're predetermined to be an npc but i think you can become one and we've seen a lot of that the last few years haven't we yeah, it's like you substitute your agency for the automatic programming of society. And like, you know, humans are both individual and group oriented at the same time. Like we're a really intriguing species in that sense. Um, and we have consciousness, right? So we're able to understand and observe and perceive <laughs> all of these things as well. So really it's about trying to live your life to the best of your ability and to maximize and realize your potential, which only you can really understand. Um, and to me, and this is, well, I know we're eventually going to be transitioning into talking about like running or sports, but to me, it's like, this is where I aim my, I guess, investigations into sport wanting to know like what's the nature of this activity why do we have it what can it be utilized for and the historical the philosophical the spiritual they all line up to sort of point to this answer that sport exercise exertion through the body is the highest ideal or to put it a different way, it's the greatest vehicle that we have in order to realize our individual potential or to, to put it into a psychological term, to self-actualize. 
Like that's why we have sports. That's why we have running for the sake of running, lifting for the sake of lifting, um, shooting an, a, a puck on ice for the sake of getting it past the goalie. Um, those things exist to give us the opportunity to prove ourselves and to realize the potential that's inside each and every one of us. I agree. And I think done properly, sports or physical activity, if set up properly and done correctly, I think it can be the stepping stone for everything in your life. You know, get, if you get the psychology right in sports, if you learn to enjoy in sports, if you figure it out there, then you can take that to all different areas of your life. And that's been the case for me, for sure. I mean, geez, I'd be nobody without sports. Like literally that was everything for me. You know, without that, God knows who I'd be or where I'd be. I'd be a shell of myself. So uh, yeah. it's, I'm really passionate about that. So I'm really excited to set up this second part so before we go into part two, Jordan, and there's so much we're going to be getting into, I want to talk about psychology, uh, the importance of having a mentor, coach, uh, the importance of visualization, self-talk, overcoming hardships. There's so much we're going to get into. But before we go there, I just want listeners to know that you do coach as well. You do have an entrepreneurial business. And if Jordan has inspired you with his own story of overcoming the hardships over the past few years, how can people reach out to you, Jordan, and get... Uh, maybe speak to you about potentially coaching with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so you can um, just reach out to me, DM on my Twitter or X profile. I don't know what we call it these days. We're still in that weird transition period where everybody wants to call it Twitter, but it's we all realize we can't anymore. Um, so I would just suggest like get onto my page, um, shoot me a DM. Uh, I do some different types of coaching. Um, so I have one-on-one -on -one coaching that I do for individuals and it's particularly aiming at this sort of like this spiritual element that I was talking about. Um, but we, uh, we attack it through the body um, in terms of physicality and learning lessons from the body and transferring them into mental and spiritual breakthroughs. Um, so I do that one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, I don't know if there's video on this, this pod or not, but I, I'm wearing gear right now. Uh, and it, and I also coach, um, with an endurance training team, uh, which is called tribal training, which is run by, uh, Ryan Dreyer. Uh, so I work under him and we are a triathlon training club, uh, specifically for ultra endurance. So like, uh, Ironman or 70.3, I don't do triathlon, uh, but I do ultra running. And so we also do some ultra running stuff. Um, so really that's like a really good illustration of, you know, so we use physical training. So we're all going after something that's hard, right. Which is a 70.3 in Ironman, or we're training to run a hundred mile trail race, uh, 13 of us on the team, uh, next year in Utah. So that's going to be pretty oh, wow. cool. Which race is it? Is it going to be? It's, the Zion, it's like uh, Zion ultra. Zion oh, ultra the Zion. Races. That's a famous race over there. Yeah. 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 So we are doing, uh, there's 13 of us on the team. And we're all running it together. So it's like uh, we all start together. We all finish. We all cross the finish line together. So there's no individual glory. Uh, we're just going to be out there for hopefully less than 30 hours. But you never know. Uh, you never know how long could get out there. It's Well, 100 miles on the trail. Yeah, that's uh, you could quite easily be out there. A good. I mean, how much elevation do you have in Zion? It's a good amount. I don't know the exact specs, but it's a good amount. It's couple. It's like five figures. It's like five figures. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of elevation. It's a lot of elevation in feet. Um, five, not five figures in meters. Oh gosh, no, 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 no. Imperial system. <laughs> um, so that is like a really cool 
it's like oh this that's like a one-of-a-kind thing like i'm a one-of-a-kind dude but this team we have is like a one-of-a-kind thing um and not only do we do the physical stuff but we do this mental and spiritual transcendental type of training talking it's the community it's the mentorship it's everything so you know if you're somebody who is itching to compete or you want to test yourself in the arena of sport i would highly encourage you to join our team so tribal training uh but if you're somebody who is interested more in like your own personal journey overcoming we'll call it a spiritual deficit of willpower where you can't do the things that you know you should be doing and for most people that's like getting in physical shape but for other people it's like launching your business or making that hard decision um about a relationship i help people in all those fashions like one-on-one so i guess that's a decent overview of some of the 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 coaching stuff that i do um right now so we're going to leave it there for part one everyone that was really just our introduction to get to know jordan but in part two we really start to dig into some of the philosophy and ethos behind self-improvement about how it can actually transform us into somebody that is capable of overcoming even the most difficult of times. And let's not beat around the bush. Those are the kind of times we're going to be facing. However, think about that old adage, hard times make for hard men and hard women. And that's why I think it's so important that we build in hardship into our day-to-day life, even if it's just a cold water shower in the morning, whether it's going for a run on the trail, getting out there in nature, decompressing psychologically, but also actually adding hardship psychologically through the physical exertion. And it's that kind of dichotomy there. You're actually decompressing because you're escaping the media. You're escaping all of the fear-based propaganda, the lies, the crazy people who want to wear masks and tell you that you're going to die by breathing fresh air. We can escape them out in nature and on the trails or by doing cold water submersion out there in the lake. However, we can also build toughness into the body and the mind too. And that's so critical because we're going to need to be tough, everyone. And I think some of the years that we're going to have ahead of us when we've got things like food shortages, financial crisis and all the other stuff that we can see on the horizon, the very near horizon, We're going to have to be tough. We're going to have to be enduring. And the people who survive and actually go on to thrive is going to be those people who are already adaptable, who already have the capacity for endurance, for taking care of their own needs, for going out there and making it happen no matter what befalls them. And I think it's within the capacity of each and every one of us to become that person by adding more challenge to our life voluntarily. And we can do that in many different ways. So in part two, we talk about that. And I share some of my personal stories about how I lost my running career, but my very last race where I became injured halfway through and I knew it was the last race, I still went on to finish that race. I forced myself to do 15 miles with pretty much a broken leg. That's what I did. So why did I do that? And why do I now say that that was my best race ever, that that was my most important race ever? Well, in part two, you're going to find out why. Jordan's going to share some of his stories too. A lot of inspiration there going into the new year. So members, please head over to parallelmind.com to listen to that. If you're not a member and would like to join us, we would love to have you there. In closing, thank you all so much for listening. I hope you all had a fantastic Christmas and I wish you all good health, happiness and prosperity in 2024. And as always, I'll see you in the next one.
what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. For all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace in our time. Peace in all time. 